Welcome to Manic Pixie Dream Girl, a John Green podcast, his film and TV adaptations, and nothing in between. I'm Joe. And I'm a mystery, because I'm a lady. (laughs) It's true. One of these days I'm going to solve you, and then the podcast will just magically end. Uh, Well, Joe, I would not want to get in the way of your great perhaps. Right. (laughs) I read that line at the beginning of the book this time, and I was like, Joe hates this. <laughs> I just feel like it's so labyrinthian, and I'm just constantly looking to find my way out of it. Uh, straight and fast, Joe. Straight and fast. <sighs> well, what does that mean, Brenna? Does that mean suicide, or does that mean that she fell asleep? <laughs> we'll never know. P.S. Spoiler alerts, everybody. We are going to be talking about the... I mean, I feel like it's heavily telegraphed in both the book and film, but Joe was surprised by it, so... There is a spoiler in this episode if you want to go and watch your show or read your book before you listen to this. It would be a good idea if you care about spoilers. Well, yeah, and I realize we've done trigger warnings around suicide attempts and addiction and other things before, and you did not warn me, Brenna. You're suggesting that this is telegraphed, and there's a tragedy, but not the context. So I was actually very surprised. Yes, and we should say, you're right, that there is quite a lot of substance abuse in particular. There's, uh, I think, the television show is better at dealing with the idea that there is there is depression here, mm-hmm. certainly. And there is at least suicidal ideation, however you think the actual yes. climactic moment occurs. So yeah, there's definitely serious themes here. And I think most of the thrust of our discussion today is going to be whether Green handles those gracefully or not. Right. And in case you're wondering, we've teased the fact that he does not in previous (laughs) episodes on both Fault in Our Stars as well as Paper Towns. A theory that I am proposing is that John Green has been trying to write an apology for this book for his entire career. So we'll talk about that today. Yeah. But before we do, Joe, do you have any homework? I do. So in keeping with the renamed podcast that we are now hosting, I'm going to talk about the trailer drop for Let It Snow, which came out, I believe, earlier this week. It looks extremely charming. It does. So in case people have forgotten, Brenna, you've mentioned this before when we found out it was being adapted into a Netflix movie. So Let It Snow is an anthology of three different stories written by three different authors. John Green, as well as Maureen Johnson and Lauren Miracle. It looks lighthearted and fluffy, and it's going to be released technically on Netflix on November 8th, and we will be covering it for the podcast, but we're going to hold off until it's just a little bit deeper into the holiday season. November 8th seems awfully early. Anyway, so it does star a couple of people that we have encountered in previous episodes. So one of the leads is Kiernan Shipka from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Oh. We've also got Dumplin' and The Givers, Odea Rush. We've got Everyday's Jacob Italian 
And a favorite of mine who we've not talked about is Liv Hewson. She's from the late, dearly departed Santa Clarita Diet. So this is basically Netflix's current model where they just reuse people from other Netflix properties and say, hey, how would you like to be in this? And yeah, it looks appropriately adorable and romantic. And I don't know, it's just something treacly to look forward to. Yeah, the book is really quite lovely. And I think I said maybe last year in our Christmas episode that the stories are not of even quality. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned that one was much better than the other one. Yeah, and I think it'll be good to see like a single director unifying the three separate stories. I think that can only do good things for the evenness of the text. Yeah, and looking at the trailer, it's hard to tell that they're different stories. It looks like one of those big ensemble romantic comedies that was very popular maybe five to ten years ago, like Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, and all that kind of stuff, where it's different couples connecting, and then they're all part of a shared universe where it's like they work at the same place, or one of them is friends, and so that has been a very successful model and typically those are not directed as anthologies so very much like this it's one writer or a couple of writers and then one director handling it so that it has a consistent tone yes it makes me think of sort of love actually for teens Mm -hmm. and that's a compliment i've watched that movie ten thousand times (laughs) (laughs) there's actually some problems in that movie as well i know (laughs) i didn't realize it till i got older Right? Yeah. Everything that we love as children gets ruined for us as adults. It's really bad when you realize that the part of that movie that you felt was a like grand romantic gesture when you were like 21 is just stalking. Yes. (laughs) However, Emma Thompson's performance in that film is iconic and I will hear nothing else. Fair. Yeah. Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, delightful. There's that moment where she discovers the affair and she goes into her room and she just like has a cry and then she Mm -hmm. has to go out and like parent her kids. And I'm just like, that's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, feels like adulting. Feels like adulting. Just in case I can't edit around it, maybe at this point I'll just clearify, my neighbors are doing renovations <laughs> at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning, so if folks do hear some light ambient background that sounds like the roof is about to fall in on me, it maybe is. It maybe is. It's funny, these Saturday morning recording sessions, Joe, because I literally, like normally the baby has me up at six so being up for seven which is when we record in my time zone is not an issue but today the baby actually slept so extricating myself from bed at 6 45 was so 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 hard (laughs) and now you've got renovations it's -hmm. like the universe conspiring it doesn't want us to talk about john gray (laughs) (laughs) uh we're not there yet (sighs) brenna do you have any homework i don't i was gonna try to fake it and it's just i don't i mean you could thank the two people who wrote into us this week oh i could thank the two people who wrote into us this week okay so we got two fan emails this week from two of our close friend listeners listener friends oh i like listener friends oh that's nice yeah you know like sister friend listener friend anyway um not weird (laughs) i feel like max and andrew would both be fine with it max and andrew both wrote in this week So we had a great note from Andrew uh, actually writing in to thank Leo for writing in to give some warnings about the art of being normal. And Andrew brought up a great point, which is Rainbow Rowell, 
And I did know this, and it's one of the reasons why we haven't talked about Eleanor and Park on the show. Uh, okay. Yeah, so Rainbow Rowell, I was I was fangirling her last week, and it's true that I do really enjoy her storytelling, particularly the Carry On, Wayward Son, fangirl universe that she built, which I think is a really interesting accomplishment, this idea that you would create a world and then go back and write its own fan fiction and then publish that. I think is kind of fascinating. But it's true that Rainbow Rowell's book, Eleanor and Park, Park is a Korean character, Korean-American character, and many Korean-American readers have strongly critiqued the way Park is represented Mm. and the way his family is represented. And I think the biggest issue around that is that Rainbow Rowell has never addressed it. Oh. Yeah, she's just kind of ignored that criticism, even though it's like all pretty wildly public. Right. So, yeah, I think it's worth thinking about authors as a whole. And I think Andrew is right to mention that we should have mentioned that uh, when we talked about Rainbow Rowell previously. And he points out a blog called Fandoms Hate People of Color, which is worth reading. I I followed the link and I checked it out and it is worth reading to reflect on how what Rainbow Rowell is doing in that book is actually quite similar to the way fandom culture in general tends to erase people of color. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I feel like we've had so many constructive conversations about the advances that have been made in, you know, YA specifically, but also I think more broadly speaking, the way that creatives have been addressing things like people of color like history and there's been some really great strides but there's always more work to be done and I think this is a really good example that sometimes people don't do a great job of something we're about to go into an extended conversation (laughs) about this very fact (laughs) but part of it is that you can't also just sweep it under the rug because once your work is out there there's going to be constant new readers or new people who are going to be interrogating it and there's value to be had in the conversations but also as a person who creates content like you are held responsible like you Mm -hmm. have a sense of ownership over certain things but also once it's out in the world it creates a dialogue and to just not address it I think is the absolute wrong way to go yeah I agree and you know one thing that we'll talk about today is that John Green has he stands by this book like he's not like well looking for alaska is a book i eschew but he has talked a lot about how he wrote it when he was 23 and his view of women was pretty effed up when he was 23 and that's part of sort of the larger argument i'm going to make and i think it's not necessarily that authors have to find their way to perfection i don't think we've been 100 percent thrilled about any of the female characters that john green has constructed but to not even address the criticism when it is fairly widely known i think is I mean, on a basic level, it's kind of disrespectful to your fans who are taking the right. time to call you in and have a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. It's education. It is, right? And if you can think about it that way and kind of put your ego in check, I think it's healthier. But I, I would imagine that is hard to do with a book that you have brought into the world. Fair. Yeah. So I liked that one thing that Andrew uh, included in this email, which is that the representation in Eleanor and Park that is upsetting for so many people is the representation of a Korean-American teenage boy. And Andrew has read Frankly in Love by David Yoon, which is the story of a Korean-American boy named Frank. We've teased this book before because this is the book written by Nicola Yoon's husband. Mm -hmm. And Nicola Yoon's husband is the one who did the 
kind of neat little illustrations and things in her book. So this is one that I've been keeping my eye on and I hadn't had a chance to check out yet. So uh, Andrew sent in a positive review and said it's worth checking out. Um, And then we got a second email from other listener friend, Max. And Max sent in some more suggestions for us to read. um, And I got more recommendations. I mean, Max gave a reason why I got more recommendations than you, but I think the subtext is that he likes me best. Well, I feel like what I've heard on Twitter is that people just generally like you better anyway. So (laughs) that's completely fine. I've come to acceptance that on both of my podcasts, I'm the less interesting person. (laughs) It's fine. I'm okay with it. You're the rock, Joe. You're the rock. You're the foundation. You're the... I'm the person who keeps the show on the rails. You literally are. You're the person who does literally all the work also. (laughs) (laughs) For those who haven't listened for a long time and don't know this, Joe does literally all the scheduling, all the organizing, all the planning. Half the time he's messaging me like midweek to remind me to read. (laughs) Brent is the one with maybe a little bit more on the go. We'll put it that way. (laughs) Joe definitely keeps this this ship afloat. Anyway, there are some great recommendations Mm -hmm. uh, for each of us in there. But the actual one I wanted to mention is that at the very end of that email, Max says that he really liked the queer reading that I stumbled through of Something Wicked This Way Comes. I was impressed. I liked it. And uh, he says, it makes me wonder how you guys would react if or when you ever do The Outsiders. Which? We have to do The Outsiders. It's on the list, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like we need to move it up. I forgot. I reread and rewatched that movie. Reread the book and rewatch the movie. Ugh, this story gets embarrassing here. After I read Rob Lowe's autobiography. Oh, yeah, okay. It's actually really good. His first one. His second one, I didn't finish. It got boring. But I'm his sorry, first one is... the second Rob Lowe autobiography <laughs> that you also read? The first one is really good. It's called Stories I Tell My Friends. Okay. And it's all just like, it's really just about his youth in Hollywood and the... Oh, so the good years. Yeah, the good years. And like all these stories about like, yeah, being on set with Scorsese and stuff. It's good. The second one is about parenting and stuff. And it's like, meh, whatever. Mm. Who who needs this? Not me. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, when I read that, he had all these stories about this feeling of horror that overtook him when he went to see the premiere of Outsiders. Because uh, it's a completely different cut than they had been shown. Like the Ooh. cut that was publicly released was completely different than the one they'd been shown. And apparently it was horrible. And then Martin Scorsese has since gone back and recut the film. And the version that we would have watched in high school and stuff was probably the recut version. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, it would be worth talking about for sure. And I had completely forgotten about how much I wanted to talk about it until I saw Max's email. So thanks for that, Max. Yeah. Good reminder. Thanks, Max. And just a reminder that you too can write in and remind us that books exist. Um, (laughs) The hashtag HKHSpod or the email hkhspod at gmail.com. Well done. Very nice. Thanks. Okay, so let's get into this. I was going to say, we've avoided it long enough. It's time to look for Alaska. Not even avoid it. It's... <laughs> I feel like this is a text that has loomed large over our previous discussions of yes. everything that John Green has put together. And yes. as you said, you know, this is something that I think he's been trying to work through for most yes. of his career. So let's talk about the John Green origin story. Okay, so Looking for Alaska is indeed John Green's first novel published in March of 2005 and written when he was 23, which is kind of amazing. Is it? (laughs) I'm 
just saying. I mean, you. It was a bestseller when he was 23. That's like objectively amazing. Okay. Even if you don't like the content. No, when you put it that way, sure. <laughs> when it's a bestseller, okay, that's a big deal. But I feel like we've had many people who have published books before they were 23, and we don't give them the same amount of credit. <laughs> okay. That's a fair point. Do you want me to go back and give more credit to Wattpad author, whose name I can't remember, who was 14? Move on, Brenna, move on. (laughs) Okay. So um, this is John Green's first novel, and it is, he has said, based on some of the experiences that he had as a teenager, it feels very much like a Mary Sue narrator at times, meaning an author injection of the self. Mm -hmm. But John Green has sort of resisted that. But he did go to a small Alabama boarding school. He did grow up in Florida. And there's an FAQ on his website about this book. And one of the questions is, did you know an Alaska? And he has said that question is too personal to answer. So Which means yes. Obviously, yes. <laughs> I mean, whether or not the same fate befell her, probably not. Well, maybe not. I mean, maybe that's why it's painful. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. He says there is one review in, oh gosh, I can't remember where I read it, but there is one review where he does talk about the death of a central character in your life in high school and what that is like to overcome. Mm. So okay, who knows? Who knows? But I do know that the fox hat scene is real. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, he, he had a friend who used to do that. Anyway, so the story itself uh, is from the perspective, frustratingly so, of Miles Halter. Ugh. Who is the milk toast dish of milk toast teenage boys? Possibly one of the worst teenage boy depictions we've ever read on this podcast. And I was thinking, you know, have we read a single YA book written by a dude about a dude that isn't super problematic about women? We're looking for Alaska. <laughs> We're still trying to find it. Miles Halter's boring affectation is that he's obsessed with the last words of famous people. Oh my gosh. And his other boring affectation is that he reads biographies, even biographies of artists and writers, but never looks at their art or writing. Yeah. Which is just so very many teenage boys I went to school with that I (laughs) believe it, but it's just exhausting. And there's one scene that's added in the film version that isn't in the book that is a nice touch when the colonel, his roommate, is asking him something and he's he's completely obtuse and the colonel turns to him and says why don't you try reading some biographies of women man because <laughs> it's true he basically only reads biographies of dudes well i also like that alaska at one point i can't remember if it's in the book but miles is actually described as poorly read because yes. he doesn't actually know anything he only knows last words that's the only reason he even reads the biographies he talks about how sometimes if he picks up a biography and he knows he doesn't have time to read it all he just reads the end to find the last words Yeah, and honestly, it reminds me of not guys from high school, but pickup artists in university who would gather these kinds of little kernels in order to impress people like party favors. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, party favors instead of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Don't be a Miles, people. Don't don't be a Miles. So Miles decides uh, he's pretty miserable at his public high school, and his dad went to this private school called Culver Creek, a boarding school in Alabama. And yeah. Miles decides that he wants to get away. He wants to have an adventure. And the he only wants thing to go to parents... Hogwarts and become special. <laughs> and the only thing his parents will probably agree to is for him to go to his dad's alma mater, where his dad was apparently the big man on campus. Mm-hmm. So 
he goes and he has a roommate named Chip, who everyone calls the Colonel, and he nicknames Miles Pudge. Because he's skinny. Get it? Ha 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 ha. They have a best friend, Takumi, who is probably my favorite character in the film adaptation. I think he's really well done. Um, and okay. Alaska, who is described as beautiful but emotionally unstable. And she is a classic Manic Pixie dream girl, and we will be unpacking that concept later today. Yes, Cody, your time has come. <laughs> the four of them are sort of a unit against the, what they call the weekend warriors, or the weekday warriors, the rich kids who go home every weekend. The four of them are like a unit against that group. And they end up sort of attracting a fifth, uh, Lara, who is Romanian-American teenage girl. They love doing pranks. There's sort of this prank war going on between the weekday warriors and our little team of misfits. Yep. But things get thrown to a new level when it becomes clear that Alaska is the one who snitched on two of the weekday warriors in order to get a single room for herself, it seems like. I mean, I know there's all this other stuff that goes on, but really, I think she just wanted the single. One of them was her roommate. So this escalates the prank war and also causes Alaska to become an outcast. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that happens and they all get really drunk after a prank that goes very well and something happens. Alaska makes out with Pudge, which sort of like blows his mind because he's actually sort of kind of halfway dating Laura, but not really. But always in love with Alaska. But always in love with Alaska because she's fascinating and she's a person who is also his journey somehow because that's a thing that is healthy. She's just a mystery that (laughs) he can't be bothered to get to know the actual girl because he's so interested in making her something for him to solve. Sorry, I'm no. We don't need to go there just yet. (laughs) But you're right. That's exactly what's happening. And we find out a couple of important things on that last night. Like, for example, I guess it's not the last night when we find that out. Anyway, we find out a couple of important things about Alaska's character, namely that her mom died when she was really young and she blames herself for it. And her father, at least in part, blamed her for it. So the next morning after this makeout session and drunken stupor or, or mid, like in the middle of the night, Alaska comes running in. She's freaking out. She says she has to go. She has to go. She can't believe she forgot. She's so stupid. The boys set up a distraction so she can get in her car and drive off campus. And she is killed in a drunk driving accident, question mark. Yes. The rest of the book is the boys trying to figure out if she has killed herself or if it was indeed an accident. And they try to piece together the clues. They try to put together an answer that they obviously can't get. And making it through the end of the semester and trying to figure out what life is going to look like post-Alaska. And they have a big prank to sort of celebrate her life at the end of the book. And um, they discover that she's actually died on the anniversary of her mother's death, which doesn't really conclude whether she committed suicide or not. And then the book ends with Pudge writing an essay for his religion class where he tells us that Alaska has forgiven him based on nothing. The end. (laughs) Yeah, I understand that the back half of this book so it's it's split into two events so there's the before and then there's the after and they're done as countdowns so it counts down to the accident in the beginning half and it counts up from the accident yeah in the aftermath and i understand that the entire back half so the after portion of this book is about grief and trying to reconcile a loss that you can't process like it's about these boys having lost an integral member of the group trying to deal with the fact that they don't understand why and that's where the looking that's where the problem solving that's where the mystery comes in but i also don't care 
<laughs> because I hate the entire back half of this book. Because A, the most interesting character in the book is now gone. And B, the way that these boys, and I know, they're teenage boys. They're dumb. They're still figuring their stuff out. But the way that they talk about Alaska and the manic pixie dream girl-ness of it all just Mm -hmm. really comes into the spotlight. And Mm -hmm. I really struggled with this part. I was kind of on board in the first half because it's got some fun pranks. It's got some fun subversions. The pranks are great. They're well-written and they're fun. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of richness. There's a lot of reality in these early parts. And then the back half of the book just feels like a slog. And not one of those, like, this is an interesting mediation on grief, like, I hate these people, I want to stop reading. Yeah, it's interesting. I always feel, you texted me yesterday that you want Laura's story, and Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Especially Laura of the book. I don't actually like what they did to Laura in the adaptation, but we can talk about that later. Okay. But I, it was funny, as I was watching, I was finishing up the series last night before bed, and I was thinking about how much I understand slash relate to Laura's character. So my high school had a great tragedy with a student who was, who died in a, she was actually struck by lightning. Oh my gosh. Uh Uh-huh. And I was, well, Devin's best friend was her ex-boyfriend who she was with at the time. And I went to high school with her at a different school than they went to. And it was weird. I I still very much remember this feeling of being on the periphery of someone else's central tragedy. Mm -hmm. Like being very sad. Yeah, I was Laura. I feel like I was Laura. Oh, okay. Like understanding, like being sad, like having genuine grief for this loss and mm-hmm. wanting to be there for a close friend who is experiencing a loss, but also not being able to step into that depth of loss. And I don't know, I just, I realized this time that maybe that's why I like Laura so much as a character and why I'm frustrated with how little we get of her because there's a level at which she has the most interesting perspective on all of these people. She has the right. most objective perspective on all of these people and we never get to hear it. No. Well, okay. So, and maybe this is a good point to address the fact that this book is not pretending to be anything but a first person account. Yes. And you warned me offline last week when I said that I was just about to dive into this. You warned me and said, don't trust Miles because mm-hmm. he is an unreliable narrator. And I'll confess that I don't get it in the way that I do normally when you say, like, don't trust this person, Mm -hmm. because I don't think that the book is written in such a way as you're not meant to trust him. You have to come to an understanding that the book is being filtered only through Miles' perspective. And it's not that you can't trust what he's saying, but rather he has a very limited point of view. It's a narcissistic. Yes. It's a narcissistic perspective. And he is he is in the way that all teenagers are especially all teenagers in crisis, are narcissists. And I think that uh, Green doesn't do an effective job of signposting for us that Miles' perspective is only one perspective. And I think that's the frustration for me in the book is not actually, maybe not actually the book itself, although it is caused by the book itself, but like... There are lots of 20-somethings with, (laughs) I go to seek a great perhaps, or straight and fast, tattooed on their bodies. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in Fault in Our Stars when we were talking about Ansel Elgort's. Oh, um, Augustus, Augustus Waters. Thank you. Yeah, we talked about how people 
idolize him and perhaps mistakenly confuse the fact that he is not a hero character or that he is more troubled than people maybe come to believe because he has airs about him that he's Mm -hmm. okay and of course really what happens at the end of that book should be very clear to people that oh he did not have his stuff together he was actually suffering he was in a lot of pain as well the problem you're absolutely right the problem with this book, Looking for Alaska, is that there isn't any indication that we shouldn't be trusting Miles or that we should be questioning the way that he's presenting or narrating some of these events. And I feel like if you hadn't told me, I still might have missed that. And I might have just thought, wow, these characters and all of their faults. It comes too late. Miles is obsessed with this idea that he was the last person Alaska kissed. And when they find out that the last phone call that she made was actually to Jake, her actual boyfriend, he he doesn't accept it. Like he he's like, well, he was she was calling him to break up with him. Right. Mm -hmm. She's he's completely obsessed with this idea that he was going to have sort of a great love affair with Alaska. Yeah. And Takumi and the colonel put up with that for a while. Yeah. Up until a certain point, and then they cannot take it any longer. And then they both lose it on him. And Takumi loses it on him because Takumi also had a crush on Alaska to a greater or lesser extent. And this idea that Miles has some possession over her, he finds very upsetting. Which is correct. It is absolutely correct. The colonel is more frustrated by the fact that, or actually angry, he's angry because Miles is more obsessed with finding a reason to prove that Alaska loved him than mm-hmm. the truth about what happened to her. Yeah. And it causes a, a rift in their friendship, a temporary one. But I think we needed a scene like that earlier in the text. We needed the colonel to say something like, you don't see her clearly and it's not fair to her about a hundred pages before. Yeah. Because when that comes in the book, I think for adult readers, it's a great relief that somebody has finally told miles yeah to knock it off yeah we don't swear on the podcast but it was very (laughs) much one of those like hey (laughs) you have effed up and And i'm now calling you on your s yeah (laughs) (laughs) because i think it's really easy if you are already invested in miles's worldview and i don't just mean male readers here i don't just mean heterosexual male readers here i think young women readers young straight women readers are really easily taken in by this idea of being someone's everything oh my gosh there's of course. a romantic notion to it so yes i'm not just critiquing readers who are like miles but readers who identify with miles or readers who want to be seen the way miles sees alaska of course yeah by the time the colonel's outburst comes it's too late because those readers are already fully in to yeah. miles's way of seeing the world yeah you're in love with the idea of being loved yeah. Being someone's everything. Being loved that deeply. Which, yeah. by the way, if we have young listeners, when you get to your 30s, that idea is just exhausting and creepy. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things that I think is very important to always remember about YA, but I feel like it's been particularly important to remember about John Green. He loves the idea of love and how all-encompassing it is as a teenager how it just consumes every facet of your life to the point of people leaving school to the point of people (laughs) booking trips to Amsterdam to the point of people leaving their health and safety behind in the pursuit of love yes and the simple fact is is that when you are a teenager and you've got hormones that is a reality 
but it's very troubling and dangerous as you become older and you can look back and say oh that's not healthy and no one can be like no one could possibly live up to it right and Mm -hmm. I think that's the big problem with looking for Alaska is that there's no way that that girl whoever she is because we never actually get to meet her in the book we only ever get to meet the fictitious manic pixie dream girl of miles's dreams there is no way that she could have ever lived up to it which is why it's so good when the colonel calls him on it because that girl doesn't exist and there is some signposting of this but it's like it's like english teacher level subtle so (laughs) when he which john green loves to do yeah he really could i name drop this book or this famous person (laughs) this was like erudite for lovers and it was frustrating (laughs) so there's all these moments like the first time miles ever has a conversation the first real conversation he ever has with alaska they're in the dark so he can't see her properly there's a scene early in the text when he first meets her and her hair is covering her face so he can't see her properly there's all of these little like mm-hmm. moments where he's she not is, seeing her he's not seeing her properly <laughs> she's obscured in some way i just think the colonel needed to snap about the way he talks about alaska once while Alaska was still alive for the critique of Miles in the second half of the book to sustain, if that makes sense. I feel like the closest that we get is the Thanksgiving interactions where Mm -hmm. Takumi and the Colonel warn Miles he should not stay for Thanksgiving because Alaska, that's not what's going to happen. Miles may think that because it's just the two of them that they're going to share something, the relationship is going to deepen or progress, but that is not the reality. But at that point, it just seems more like a bro warning. Like, hey, man, it's probably not going to happen because she's still dating Jake. Yeah. Instead of framing it like this person who you believe exists doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and stop it, right? (laughs) Yeah, just stop it. (laughs) Literally, Miles, just stop it. And it's interesting. So... And maybe we should talk about this construct of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Joe, before we, um, yes. before I make my theory about how I think this has informed so much of Green's career. Okay, so we've discussed this a couple times. This used to be a bingo slot when we mm-hmm. were in our first book. And mm-hmm. I realized, I guess in hindsight, we didn't really unpack it. I think we mistakenly assumed that people just knew what we were talking about because yeah. to us, it's something we'd encountered many a time. And it's a phrase that actually originates from film criticism. So I'm going to let Joe take the lead on it because I believe it was a review of Elizabethtown where where this term got coined, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it harkens back to Cameron Crowe's oeuvre. And he is a director who actually has quite a lot in common with... I was going to say... Not just John Green adaptations, but Josh Schwartz, the guy who adapted Looking for Alaska, who's been responsible for things like The O.C. and Gossip Girl, previous episode. So Cameron Crowe is, he got his start in the music industry. Not unlike John Green, he made a film that's very much indebted to his own experience as a teenager when he followed a rock band for Rolling Stone. And he ended up falling in love with this girl. So this actually comes back to Cody's question about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl originating with the movie Almost Famous, but Mm -hmm. it kind of got solidified in Elizabethtown. I can't even remember who the actress is, but it it starts to come up around the idealization of a woman who is perfect. She's quirky. She's cute. And it becomes problematic because that's all she is. She Mm -hmm. is just the literal embodiment of everything that a man should want and fall in love with and she 
herself is actually not a real person. She is a figment of a male's attention and imagination. Nathan Rabin is the critic who coined that term in his review of Elizabethtown, and the definition he gives of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, quote, exists solely in the fevered imagination of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that this is a female character who's, she doesn't get her own interior life. She doesn't get any sort of depth or rounding. She exists solely to help men. Yeah. And particularly, and this is where it becomes very evident in the case of Looking for Alaska, she exists to help men without pursuing her own happiness. Yes. And without ever being allowed to grow up. No, she has no agency. She is not her own person. She is there solely for the male character to progress on his journey. We also, I believe, talked about this a little bit in Scott Pilgrim, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, and we can think of some pretty famous examples. Natalie Portman mm-hmm. in like most everything she made in two thousand early two thousands, but especially Garden State. Yes, yes. Kristen Dunst in Elizabeth Town for yeah. sure. These are roles where the film itself is about a young man's it's like journey. A journey. Yeah. And usually it's either he's super, super straight-laced and he meets this young woman who teaches him to find love and magic and adventure in the world. Mm-hmm. Or he has sort of one last fling with a manic pixie dream girl before he achieves his own adulthood. Before he settles down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's often set to a great soundtrack. Always a great early 2000s soundtrack. It's the rule. (laughs) Um, There have been some good deconstructions of the trope of the manic pixie dream girl. I'm thinking particularly of Zoe Deschanel's character in 500 Days of Summer. Oh, interesting. I know she is in many ways, She to Tom, she's perfection, right? Yes. But perfection has no depth. And the, the flip side of what's happening there is that we are learning what the danger is of idealizing women as things. Like yeah. that's the flip of his arc, right? It is. It's just interesting that you say that because so many people really actively dislike that film for that very purpose. I know, but I think they're not right. watching it right, Joe. I think they're watching it wrong. Interesting. <laughs> And then there have been some really dumb attempts to read in a Manic Pixie Dream boy. And in fact, I know, The Fault in Our Stars was critiqued by Vulture as having a Manic Pixie Dream boy character in the character of Augustus Waters. Right. Which I think is the exact opposite. So this is another way. I think in both Paper Towns and in The Fault in Our Stars, we A, see John Green critiquing boys like Miles. Okay. So the whole point of Paper Towns, if you remember, <laughs> was... I've repressed, I've repressed. <laughs> whether you thought it was effective or not, I think the entire intent of Paper Towns was for the protagonist of that book, whose name escapes me, to realize that actually the woman he's running after has her own life. She yeah. does not waiting to be rescued by him. Yeah. And she exists when he's not in the room right yeah because remember there's that scene where he finds her and he's like i found you and she's like i don't understand why you're here yeah (laughs) i did not invite you hi who are you you're interrupting my story right now (laughs) and then with the fault in our stars we see green writing a female character who is always critiquing the sort of two-dimensional way in which Augustus Waters does view the world, right? So Augustus mm-hmm. thinks everyone is either a hero or a villain, and he thinks that everyone has to do something heroic or their life doesn't matter. And she's there being like, that's 
That's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) But we have it from her perspective. So I don't know that he's, I don't know that he's done working this issue out. Abundance of Catherine's is another great example and one I don't think has been optioned for a film. It's probably my favorite John Green book. In Abundance of Catherine's, we have a protagonist who literally only dates women named Catherine. And the entire book is a critique of the way he treats women Hmm. from the perspective of his two best friends who are way less John Green than the John Green protagonist. Right. (laughs) And Green has talked a lot about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope. And he has articulated that it was his hope that people were reading Miles' perspective of Alaska critically. Mm. And I think what we've talked about is that that's not... It's not signposted well enough for the reader that that's what they're supposed to be doing. And I think Green himself, at the time of writing this book, is probably far too wrapped up in the character of Miles and the experience of of Miles to actually really have been doing that effectively. But I do think he has spent the rest of his career trying to prove that he can write young women who aren't Manic Pixie Dream Girls and young men who aren't so... Or maybe what he's been trying to do is show that he can critique the trope and the way young men take up the trope. Yeah. Interesting because we, I feel like because we keep having these conversations, I don't know how successful he's been in that attempt. Oh yeah, I know. I don't think, I don't think he has been fully, but I do think it has a lot to do with his change of perspective. So his last two novels have female central characters. Um, His last two novels are way more complex in how he addresses issues of love, romance, life, etc. I don't know that he's gotten it right, particularly, and I still worry about the necessarily one-dimensional nature of a certain aspect of fandom that is going to get straight and fast tattooed on their bodies. Mm -hmm. There's simply too much ease in overlooking the problematic aspects and just falling head over heels into... The romance, the all-encompassing yes. romance. Like, as we so clearly saw in even something like The Vault in Our Stars, which I think is far more successful than both Looking for Alaska and Paper Towns. Paper Towns kind of a dog, but yes. Interestingly enough, so I rated Looking for Alaska on Goodreads, and mm-hmm. I did actually immediately get a response from Cody saying, I can't believe you rated this lower than <sighs> Paper Towns and Vault in Our Stars. And I feel like one of the reasons I'll apologize to listeners, if it seems like I'm coming down a little bit more hard or I'm being a little bit more aggressively mean, I've had a very difficult week. But that aside, I realize that one of the reasons that I feel like I so aggressively dislike John Green is because I'm reading these books in reverse order. So you the, are reading the them books in reverse are getting order. worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. You are. And that sucks. Um. So I don't know, John Green, maybe I owe you an apology, but also your early books are the dog's breakfast. (laughs) They're not showcasing the things that you do well. And just to move it away from the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Mm because I feel like we've made our argument. Yeah, I feel like the other thing that really frustrates me about the John Green characters, and I did not see it get better in Paper Towns or Fault in Our Stars, and maybe you can comment on the other books. I sincerely think that he believes that character development or just character building can be supplemented by giving characters quirks. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely guilty of that. I would not disagree with you there. And I think the other thing that he relies on way too heavily is the idea that our growth as people functions primarily through tragedy. I think he Mm. leans on that really, really heavily. But the flip side is there are some things I think he does really well. Like I think that... (laughs) 
the narcissism of teenagehood. Mm. He captures it so well. And that's part of what makes his books often very frustrating to read. But I know that teenage Brenna would have been extremely into this because teenage Brenna was extremely into Dawson's Creek. And these books share a lot of similarities with this idea of teens who are the smartest people in the room right. and who want to want the world to see them that way and who are frustrated by a world not acknowledging their brilliance, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And to clarify, that's what you mean by narcissist, because I feel like maybe people misunderstood when we first mentioned it. Yeah, I'm not talking about like a clinical narcissistic personality disorder. I'm talking about narcissism in the more adjectival sense of the word, this idea that the world revolves around you and your experiences which by the way is like a developmentally normal part of teenagehood Mm -hmm. it doesn't make it unfrustrating to read (laughs) but and there are definitely writers who do it with more critique okay or in a way that is easier to empathize with but i think the way green i mean these books resonate with teenage girls in particular and i think part of it is that desire to be someone's you want to be somebody's alaska you want to be somebody's hazel Yes. So I think that's part of it. But I think the other thing that's a part of it is that he writes that youthful self-centeredness as totally normal. And I think that that is probably really validating. Mm-hmm. I can totally see it. And he, as much as it pains me to say this, he treats it with a certain amount of respect. Like, Oh, yeah. We talked about this before. He doesn't write down to his audience in the way no. that we've seen in some of these other YA texts. To the extent that you are a smart teenager who doesn't think anybody else knows anything about anything and you want to be taken seriously, I think that these are books that they reflect that worldview in a way that is probably really comforting and meaningful. And like I was reading Twitter last night while I was finishing the last episode and I was reading all these people who like read this book when they were 12 Mm. and like, you know, people were showing off their Alaska tattoos and on the Twitters. And I, I just realized that like, Everything that frustrates me about John Green is profoundly meaningful to someone else. And that's a weird thing to think about. Because like most of the books that we read when we're frustrated, we're frustrated because they are bad. Like, I don't think anybody's getting a line from the kissing booth tattooed on their leg. Oh, I I worry. (laughs) (laughs) You say it like it's self-evident, but I don't know. And I think I think a lot of what frustrates me and maybe even more so you about John Green are the aspects of the books that are just not for us. Yeah. And I think acknowledging the fact that reading this as an adult for the first time, you're going to have a very different reaction than if you actually read this at a point in your life when you felt emotionally connected to it because it was so reflective of your own experience. And you should. If I met somebody who read this book as an adult and was like, I connect with this deeply. Really <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to ask you to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, you... Thank you, you next. You mentioned... Yes. Because <laughs> we do have eight episodes of television to also discuss, so... I can't believe I actually watched all eight episodes and we've spent more time talking about the dang book again. Shocker, Brenna. Shocker. <laughs> I'm fascinated by last words. My favorite last words ever... I go to seek a great perhaps. He must be the new roommate. Welcome to Color Creek, Miles. I call him Pudge. Ah, the colonel and his irony. Who's that? Alaska Young. Alaska? My reputation precedes me. (laughs) 
What's up, scrub? You grow this summer, bud? You have to excuse them, Pudge. They had everything in life handed to them. Looks like we're going to war. There has been an outbreak of pranks on campus. I hope you two are staying out of trouble. Ooh, hot damn. I didn't think you could look any more handsome. Simon Bolivar. You know what his last words are. How will I ever get out of this labyrinth? What do they mean? That's the mystery, isn't it? How much is he trying to escape? The world or the end of it? I'm interested in those things, too. You ever gonna ask her out? Hi, Laura. How could I say no? What did Alaska say about dressing for a first date? You do realize you're going on a date with Laura and not Alaska, right? Maybe the girl I was supposed to be with was right in front of me. Trust me, Pudge. Hang on to your innocence as long as you can. How will I ever get out of this labyrinth? What if Bolivar wasn't talking about life or death, but that part in between? What if it's suffering? Are you suffering? Did you hear about the students who were kicked out? Going home isn't an option. Alaska's gonna get what she deserves. Okay, so Looking for Alaska has been transformed into an eight-episode television limited series event for Hulu. I enjoyed it. Could have been six, though. Just want to say that. Could have been six. It could have been a little bit tighter. Yeah, I, <laughs> there were a couple of times where I popped it open and the episode was 59 minutes and I may have groaned inwardly. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, this has been adapted by Josh Schwartz. He, of the OC and Gossip Girl, he did it with his producing partner, Stephanie Savage. They each wrote a couple of episodes. Josh Schwartz directs the final episode. One of the things I really liked is that six of the eight episodes were directed by women. So mm-hmm. hell yes to that. And let's do a quick walkthrough of the cast. So we've got Charlie Plummer as Miles. Yes, that is the grandson of Christopher Plummer, in case you were wondering. Also, could he look more like Chad Michael Murray in this styling? Mm, the hair is not helping him. <laughs> we've got Christine Froseth as Alaska. Denny Love as the Colonel, Jay Lee as Takumi, Sophia Vasileva as Lara. Leva, I think. Vasileva. Vasileva? Okay. Mm-hmm. Henry Zaga as Jake, who, just a spoiler alert, we're going to see him in a future episode coming, I believe, next year. I'm not going to oh. tell you which one. I'll tell you all. Okay. One. Okay. And then for the adults, we've got Timothy Simons as the Eagle. That's the, the principal of Culver Creek. Fantastic casting. Yes. But also extremely distracting because, and this is going to make you scream, I listened to John Green's podcast. Gosh, okay. <laughs> it's actually, it's really good. Anyway. I'm sure it's fine. Timothy Simons and John Green have identical voices. Oh, weird. And so it's very weird. When I turned on the first episode, I was letting the preamble like play while I was answering some work emails. Mm-hmm. I, so I wasn't looking at the screen. And I did like this full body snapback. So I was like, <laughs> they did not. After how terrible he was in oh. his two cameos in the last ones, they did not put him in. No, they did not. But identical voice. Wow. Yeah, there's yeah. no cameo in this at all, is there? Nope. Okay. And then we've got Ron Cephas Jones as Dr. Hyde, who is basically the favorite teacher at Culver Creek. Mm-hmm. And then we've got Deneen Tyler as Dolores, the colonel's mom, who's really the only other significant adult figure in the TV show. And the one that I had to mention because I just loved her. 
Oh, she was fantastic. I really actually, I want to say that I think Danny Love as the Colonel and Jay Lee as Takumi were the high points for me of the the youth cast. I thought they both did just phenomenal job. Okay, I'm interested. I've seen Love get a lot of love from critics online. A lot of people have actually said that Takumi is not a well-developed character, so I'm intrigued that you connected with him so strongly. Mm, That's really interesting, because I guess objectively I would have to agree he's not particularly well-developed, but I just thought that, I mean, Takumi's the voice of reason Yes. so often in the book, and that would be a really easy part to be like super preachy or super unrelatable almost, because Mm -hmm. you're so wrapped up in the the headiness of what Colonel, the Colonel and Miles are trying to do. I just thought Jay Lee as Takumi is a very believable character. And I liked the addition of his sort of burgeoning love affair with Lara as well. I thought it was really effectively done. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought he was a very persuasive Takumi. I believed him as the smart one who nobody realizes is the smart one. Right. The emotionally smart one, right? And I wonder sometimes if some of the criticisms that get lobbed at these adaptations are from people who have not actually read the source material. So if you have read the book, you're getting far less Takumi than what you're actually getting in the TV show. So yeah. even though it seems like he's not really a fully fleshed out character in the TV show, he's leaps and bounds beyond what you get in the book. Yes, he is. And and yeah, I, maybe that's really why I liked him because I do like him so much in the book and I liked having more of him in the film. Mm-hmm. I didn't always like it when characters' roles were expanded in the film, but I liked him. <laughs> I like that dangling thread that you've <laughs> got there. So this is both a faithful adaptation, but also an adaptation that clearly knows the weaknesses of its source yes. material. And well, yes. we both talked about how we wish maybe it had been a bit tighter than eight episodes. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and I like a lot of the decisions that they made So certain things like the fallout from Alaska tattling or ratting on her roommate. In the book, that's actually an event that takes place before the events of Miles' arrival at Culver Creek. Yeah, it's basically happening sort of as he's arriving, right? Yeah, and he doesn't really understand the context for it. And it doesn't pay off in the same way. Whereas in the TV show, it's a five-episode arc that clearly factors into Alaska's depression as well as her troubled family history. So there's a clear indication that the eagle catches her burying booze in the woods and in order to save herself from having to go home and address her family issues with her father who blames her Mm -hmm. for her mother's death, this is why she rats. And it's not understood by anyone at the campus because of course Alaska doesn't tell anyone about Mm -hmm. her family history she's an enigma well and we get a lot more of her interior life which i think is is valuable and and good Mm -hmm. i think there were things that they added to increase the stakes that were just deeply unnecessary the expulsion plot line around the colonel Uh, yeah which comes to nothing because you don't care about that in the wake of alaska's death so it literally just never gets addressed again which is ridiculous and they added some things that are a lot of fun to watch like yes the diarrhea prank. The diarrhea prank is fun to watch <laughs> and funny. And you can see where it connects to the way they did the prank and stuff, like the Duke essay prank. Mm-hmm. They all connect. And that was really cute. But the flip side of that is that the characters in the book uh, leave the school a lot more off or a lot less often than the characters in the film. 
And so in the book, you have much more of a, what do you call it when everything takes place in a small space? There's like a word for that. Oh, I'm not sure. Usually I just say like single location. Yeah, it has a much more single location feel. They do leave on occasion, but in the film, it felt like every time they needed to kind of refresh, <laughs> they just leave the school. And I think that that had an impact on the extent to which the school is, mm-hmm. I don't think it's as much as a character, but it's the tone and of place at the school, like has a stronger impact in the book than it does in the film, I think. Although I like the way the school is styled in the, I should stop calling it a film, in the TV adaptation. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree with you because I think one of the things that comes through so strongly in the book is this idea that it's a safe haven, but it's also its own little isolated microcosm society. Yeah. So Alaska not only doesn't want to risk that but you can understand why someone like miles or the colonel gravitates to it because you can become a king or you can Mm -hmm. become a legend Mm -hmm. and everybody knows everybody so it just becomes this little pocket Mm -hmm. whereas in the tv show there's never the sense that you're trapped there and all of your decisions will impact everything like yeah at one point when alaska gets outed as the rat and she can't handle it, she just leaves and goes to Jake's for the weekend and gets drunk. And there's still that emotional weight attached to it. You understand the stakes, but at the same time, it feels like if people need to, they can just take a breather and run away. Yes, and I think that changes the relationship that they all have to the school. And I don't necessarily think it's for the worse or anything, Um, Mm -hmm. but I think if they had... So in my, uh, nobody asked me, but in my production there, <laughs> I would have taken out a lot of those off-campus scenes. Okay. I would have taken out the entire stupid Colonel Expulsion storyline. Yeah. And I would, have, I would have tightened it up to six episodes so that it's literally half before Alaska and half after Alaska. Because okay. I actually thought the after component was well done in the adaptation. And I wanted, I wanted it to be able to breathe a little bit more. Okay, so let's tackle that, because I think that's actually one of the most fascinating creative decisions that Schwartz and Savage are making in this. So in the book, it's almost Mm 50-50. So there's almost 50% before, almost 50% after. In the TV show, you've got six episodes of before and only two Two. episodes of after. Well, you didn't like after in the book, so I'm guessing you were happy there was less after. I was so happy there was less after. So at the end of episode six, Alaska is seen driving away in the night. And then the start of episode seven is the two boys getting awoken by the eagle for the news that Alaska has died. Which, by the way, I felt was really well done. Okay, so episode seven, I think, is probably the emotional highlight Mm -hmm. of this. And I think it's also the episode that people are going to have the most to talk about. Because Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie... I think it was well handled. It was really emotionally affecting. I think I cried about three different times. Mm -hmm. It also feels like tragedy porn. It's total tragedy porn. I was getting a lot of 13 Reasons Why vibes off of it. Oh, yeah. And then the entirety of the eighth episode, I just didn't care. I was done. I just wanted it to end. (laughs) Partially because so much of it is Miles and the colonel just going around trying to solve the mystery and i actually made a very weird creative decision myself to read the book and then watch the episode that correlated with it so oh, that i could cool. try to see 
more clearly where some of the differences were happening. I read and watched like a dog's breakfast and I was worried I wasn't even going to remember what was book and what was movie because I was, when you have eight hours to get through in a week, you're not going to wait till after you're done the whole book, right? So I like the way you did it makes a lot more sense than the way I did it. (laughs) It was something that just happened organically, not something I planned. So I can't take a ton of credit for it. (laughs) But yeah, it was the same idea where I was like, how are we going to get through eight episodes in a single week? And these episodes are long, people, which most of you probably know because you've watched them along with us. They are too long. They are too long. Even though it's on Hulu, they have Netflix creep. (laughs) (laughs) Streaming creep. It's just this thing of like, I don't know, man. It's not like I think network television is the greatest thing to ever happen. But I do think that if you have to tell your story in 44 minutes, you have to make some really hard choices. And with the exception of the first episode, which I thought was really tight, I think you could cut 10 minutes out of every single one of these episodes and put it on network television. Like, I really just, there's all these draggy bits that I guess in a weird way, I've just come to accept. Like, when I sit down to watch something that I know was made for streaming, for some reason, my brain is just like, okay, large chunks of this are going to be tedious. (laughs) And I'm just like, I guess we're all okay with it. I don't know. I'm curious to know your thoughts on this because it felt like some of those draggy bits were holdovers from the book where it felt like they needed to shoehorn in lines of dialogue or, oh, we've got to have this iconic scene of Alaska and Miles doing X or whatever. I think in many ways the adaptation doesn't 100% know whether it wants to be true to the book or not. And I think that the moments where it is true to the spirit of the book, but updated because so the, mm. the adaptation is set in 2005 but it yes. has a it has, has a, a very 2019, 2019 feel <laughs> yeah. yes well they're very aware i think of the problems like they've had 15 years to know yes these. the flip side of that is that the book was published in 2005 but it's very much set when john green was in high school in the 90s mm-hmm. not objectively but that's how it feels you know we've got our words being dropped and yeah so i think that It's 14 years between the book and the adaptation, but I think there's more like 25 or 30 years in tone shift that's gone Mm -hmm. on. This sometimes feels like an 80s or even a 90s, like an early 90s kind of vibe, doesn't it? Yes. I think that for all the good choices that Schwartz and Savage have made here, I think that they ultimately waver too much on whether to be you know, what I used to call my students a transposition adaptation, like whether they want to actually just transpose the moments of the text or whether they want to build something that is a little bit more tonally appropriate to now. And and you're mm-hmm. right. I think I don't necessarily think all the draggy moments are from the book because like as much fun as the debutante ball prank scene is to watch, I got to the end of it and I was like, but why yeah. <laughs> did we do that? Because we needed to have a prom or yeah. we needed to have a, a big dance scene. Yeah. So I... I think that this is a place where the directors and producers weren't 100% sure what the goal was in using the source text. And it's just sometimes a little bit jarring, which isn't to say it's not pleasurable. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about some of the choices made around race just to really lighten things up? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) What would you like to discuss? So I don't think the colonel's race is explicitly discussed at any point in the book. I don't think so either, Like, I wouldn't feel confident announcing that he's white in the book because I think that the reason I think he's white in the book is because I am a white person who reads white as the default. I don't think it's ever articulated. Pudge is articulated as being, is it possible to be 100% Caucasian? But but not the colonel. So I don't 
I don't really have an opinion on the race race casting, and I think Denny Love is fantastic as the Colonel. Yeah. But I felt the a... same way, except when you get introduced to his mother. His mother has some more coded language that cued me to the fact that she is African-American. But it's also possible because I was watching the show at the same time as I was reading the book. I think I got introduced to her before in the show. Right. She does appear in the show before she appears in the book. Yeah. So maybe it was just that 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 framed your expectations still. Yes, I think so. So oftentimes when they do race-blind casting like this, if indeed that is what this is. Oh, it 100% is. This is a 2019 sensibility come to play in 2005. But typically what they do is they then, the character is a character of color in appearance only. But in this adaptation, they choose to have a conversation about the colonel's race and its relationship to the private school atmosphere. Yes. When he's about to be expelled. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is that he is held to a higher standard, not... The eagle claims because he is black, but because he is on scholarship and being yes. on scholarship comes with greater scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really interesting and refreshing because as I say, oftentimes it's just like, well, we just, we put a black person in this role, but we're not going to let them have any interesting conversations about what it means to parachute this person into this world that is clearly very racially homogenous. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that for even the book that Takumi is one of the sort of outsider kids, right? Like, yeah. Takumi isn't impoverished the way nope. Alaska or the Colonel are. He's just on the outside because because he's not white. I mean, yeah. really, that that is sort of the what makes this a band of misfits is the fact that they don't fit, whether by class or by race, into the society of Culver Creek. Exactly. And that's the reason that Lara ends up in the group as well. Exactly, because she's got an accent. Yep. Which... By the way, John Green did not love. No. We've talked about this briefly before. Does nobody I... write accents? Just tell me. She said in a Romanian accent and then just write it normally because yeah, everything exactly. else you do is offensive. It's <laughs> so frustrating to read. <laughs> so there's that piece of the puzzle. What's mm -hmm. interesting, though, is that like every single YA text we read, mm -hmm. the issue of poverty is softened in the adaptation. Of course. So... In the book, I don't know if you caught this, but in the book, Colonel's mom lives in a tent trailer. Yes. Like a trailer on the back of a pickup truck that yeah. is rusted out in the bottom. That's like what she lives in. Incredibly tiny. Incredibly tiny, incredibly fragile, incredibly transitory. Yes, they live in a trailer park in the film version. It's a beautiful trailer. Like it's small and it's cramped, but it's beautiful. It's lovingly mm -hmm. maintained. She has a garden, right? Like there are all these aspects in which the depth of poverty that the colonel is trying to escape is yeah. profoundly softened in the adaptation. And mm -hmm. at some point, somebody's going to have to deal with poverty in young adult fiction on screen. Uh, I'm going to take you back. I don't know how far you ever ended up getting into it, but if we can go all the way back to the beginning of this year, I would encourage you to go back and revisit Sex Education. Okay, I didn't get anywhere near finished it, but I will. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's handled in any great detail, but the female protagonist, whose name escapes me, she lives in a trailer park, and it is a trailer. Well, There's no perks. It's surrounded by about 50 other trailers, and your nearest neighbor is about an arm's reach away. I think the Brits are a lot less shy about talking about class because there is a cultural acceptance that they live in a society where class Matters. matters whereas yeah. we have this weird thing in north america where we pretend that class isn't a thing while it's everything <laughs> Why not? 
All you have to do is work hard and then you can be rich and live in a giant place. We saw it in Love, Simon. You too can have a room that's the size of most other people's houses. That bedroom in Love, Simon (laughs) will never stop pissing me off. Anyway. Uh, That's so good. So those are two things I want to talk about with Colonel's character. And the other thing I wanted to talk about with race is... Yeah, I was going to say, you're burying the lead here, Brenna. I really... I I have a hard time with this because I love what they've done with Dr. Hyde in terms Mm -hmm. of he gets this whole backstory where he's lost his partner, where Mm -hmm. he talks to the kids about what it was like to lose a partner and be gay Mm -hmm. and be exiled from that partner's family and not being able to attend the funeral. Like there's all this beauty around what they do with his backstory. I don't want to take anything away from that. Nope. But the flip side of what they do with Dr. Hyde in... The film version is that he is a total magical Negro character. Yeah. I mean, with the exception of a few quiet moments with the eagle, he's the only character, he's the only adult character who is sort of offering guidance or advice. Uh, Handily, he's the religions teacher, so he's got this kind of spiritual mysticism about him. The way they fashion him to have this sort of like the vest and the beads all the time, like... It's just interesting that a film adaptation that is so cautious around the trope of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl buys so directly into the trope of the Magical Negro, which interestingly, lots of film critics have written about the parallels of those two tropes. Yeah, I picked up on it. It didn't bother me quite as much as it does you, if only because I saw this more as a conflation between religion and sageness or the capacity to reason particularly because it comes out so strongly in the last couple of episodes, which is the after portion, right? Mm -hmm. So we see it both in the Colonel's mom and Dr. Hyde being able to try to give this sort of advice. Yeah, it's not not there. But part of the way that I reconciled it is that these are the people who are most attuned to dispense religious advice. And as a result, they're, they're trying to find a way to comfort these teams by giving them an argument that there is something to the great beyond. I don't think it whisks it away, but... No, I don't disagree with that. And I think, I don't feel it at all with the colonel's mother, I think because of the shape of her relationship with the kids. Yeah. But there's something about the very introduction of, and part of it is the music cues around Dr. Hyde. Like, <laughs> I mean, the music in the entire series is just kind of egregious, if we're being honest. <laughs> There's one part where he's talking and there's like this soft, I don't know if it's chimes or what's happening behind him. And I'm just like, oh, I'm very uncomfortable with Mm -hmm. (laughs) the imagery you're putting forward here. And it's a shame because I actually think that he's what lends emotional weight to the film as a whole, but certainly to the after sections. Although there's a scene where the colonel begs the eagle to just get it over with and expel him. Mm -hmm. And they have this hug that is just like that broke me. I stopped. Yeah, that's where I cried. Yeah. Well, you know, as much as we want to criticize a bit of bloat in the TV show, I really appreciated how much more weight and content is actually given to particularly these three adults. The adults, yeah. We talk so often about how adults are given short shrift in YA, particularly Mm -hmm. the adaptations. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated that these I mean, there's only a couple of them, but they feel mm-hmm. like they are actually significant. And particularly when you contrast that with Miles's parents who are just emotional feathers and they're oh useless God. in every capacity. 
so useless. I liked them better in the book. There's a line, it's in both the book and the film, that I really liked is, you know, Miles sort of thinks he's been, like, handed this bad lot in life before he gets to Culver Creek. Mm -hmm. And then he meets people who, like, actually have survived tragedy and poverty. And he's like, oh. And there's a scene after Alaska dies where he's he's just sort of found out more of the backstory of Alaska's or he's just realized the depth of her grief about her mother or something and he calls home mm-hmm. and his parents are like what can we do for you and he's like I just needed you to pick up and you did yeah. he and the colonel seem to be the only characters in this entire universe who call and their parents pick up like the wealthier parents notwithstanding we have a whole thing about them in the in the film version but the value of presence mm-hmm. And the value of consistency is something that I think Miles actually has to learn. That, yeah, your life was boring before, but like, and I, and actually that might be one of my frustrations is that I want him to more explicitly acknowledge that his life might have been boring, but it was safe. Safe. Easy. Cool. <laughs> like, like, it's not better to be Alaska. Like, that's not a better life. Yeah. There's some interesting bits in those last couple of episodes, particularly in the TV show's weird bait and switch where Miles decides arbitrarily that he's not going to come back to Culver Creek and then he changes his mind. Why was that even why was that even in the why was that even in there? I mean, I told you by that point that was the eighth <laughs> episode and I just wanted it to end. I mean, if anything, that's the big payoff for the whole Colonel expulsion storyline is just how easy it is for Miles to be like, well, I can just walk away from all of this. And some critics have actually rightfully claimed that the true protagonist of the TV show is the Colonel and not Miles. But I think that's also a testament to the, the weight and the meaning that Denny Love is bringing to the role. I really like Charlie Plummer as an actor. I'm going to encourage people, if you are at all intrigued about him, this is not a good showcase for him. And it's mostly the character. He's got nothing to work with, Mm. but he's not bringing a lot to this role. Like, Miles is so forgettable in both iterations. If you're looking for something that really showcases Christopher, or sorry, Charlie Plummer (laughs) as a performer. I love Christopher Plummer's YA work, actually. Right? Isn't he great? I encourage people to check out a movie called Lean on Pete, which was, it was a big film on the indie festival circuit last year. And it's about a character played by Charlie Plummer. And he decides that he's going to rescue a retired racehorse that's maybe going to be put down if someone doesn't buy it or save it. So he steals it and tries to go on a cross-country adventure to find a way to save it. And newsflash, it doesn't end well. Oh, Jesus. Well, it's it's really about him as a boy who learning that you can't just solve things because you feel deeply about them, which to me is like, oh, is this the same role, but only handled better? <laughs> so, yeah, so that's Lean on Pete if you're interested in seeing a better vehicle for Charlie Plummer. But we're running long, but yeah. I feel like we've not talked about Alaska. Yeah. What's there to talk about, Joe? She's sad and tragic, and she gives boys a reason to be alive. Yes, but I feel like that diminishes what Christine Froseth is doing. Even though the narrative still presents her as a mystery to be solved, and they hold back on revealing a lot of things about her, I really did fall in love with her. And I think that's one of the reasons why I felt like this series is too long, because the minute that she's gone... I feel like the TV show just loses all of its energy. I think in both the book and the film, you 
like Alaska more than I do, or you find her more interesting than I do? Well, this is interesting because we had the same experience in Paper Towns. We did. It's true. Whereas I am more interested in the... You just like boys, don't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you Why don't... do you hate women, Anna? Um... Come on. No, I think I'm more interested in whether it's effective or not seeing this floundering meditation on grief. I think it mm. interests me more. And in Paper Towns, I'm much more interested in whatever the heck that protagonist's name is coming to some comeuppance over his assumptions. Right. Uh, and whether that's because I fall into the trope that Green sets up where these I don't find these young women compelling because I'm so busy rejecting this idea that they are compelling right. i don't know i don't know where it's coming from <laughs> you're not falling for his construction so you don't like them as much yeah maybe, maybe. i don't know or the, or i'm so angry about the construction that i can't connect to the actual character underneath i don't mm, know interesting yeah yeah i think maybe i am falling for john green's kool-aid because i seem to find these girls vivacious and fascinating and i always just want to be spending more time with them like oh my god you're miles i know <laughs> except that i actually want to know more about these women not just my perception <laughs> of them but i spent a lot of my time thinking how much more interesting the story would have been if it had been alaska and lara's story yes oh yeah sorry you finish about alaska now and I'm then i have some thoughts on laura it's really just because i'm so tired of white boy narratives yeah we need a break from them we get a little bit of a break next week. A little bit, yeah. The next bit. couple of weeks. Next couple be. of weeks, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about Lara, and then we're going to wrap up. I just don't like that they flattened her story for the film version. So what I find interesting about Lara is that she tells this immigrant narrative that's a little bit different than the immigrant narrative that we usually hear. Mm -hmm. So in the book... Uh, she talks about how both her best and her worst day were the day that she had to leave Romania because of what she had to leave behind. Yes. But also because materially her life with her parents is better in America. Mm. But the flip side of that is that she was parentalized really young because when they arrived in America, she could read English. And so she was filling in tax forms and things from about the age of 12. Yeah. I found that really interesting. What they do in the film version is they turn it into a very straightforward... They give her a dog. <laughs> they give her a dog and they turn it into a very straightforward... My dad was a doctor in Romania and now he drives a limousine here. Yeah. And it's very flat That's compared it. to this interesting like tension that she has around this idea that like her dad has more opportunity to fulfill himself in America, but that has come at the cost of her childhood, mm -hmm. which is a really way more interesting tension and made me want more Lara. Whereas yeah. in the film in the adaptation, I was like, well, if they gave her more me more Lara in the adaptation, would she be interesting or would she just be this? Yeah. So I again I didn't have quite the same issue with her, if only because I felt like the portrayal was really warm and I liked Lara. I like the actress. I, I will like say I like the actress a lot. a lot. I did enjoy the scene in I think that final episode where she chastises Miles for trying to create drama and making it all about friendship and taking a stand and being like this is the most important thing and she says actually we're super lucky to be here yeah. so that we can get educations and go on to good universities which is maybe just the scholar in me where I'm like yeah Laura it really <laughs> is all about your future like Miles is such a drama queen my favorite line in that part is when she says 
I'm sorry that the colonel got caught, but I'm not sorry that we didn't. Right? Yeah. I mean, she and Takumi are fulfilling very similar functions, particularly mm-hmm. in these last episodes where they're basically calling people on their S. Mm-hmm. And it's really refreshing because they feel like smart people. Yeah. They're dispassionate in the way that they're not grieving in the same sense that the Colonel and Miles are for Alaska, but they didn't fall into the trap of Alaska being everything and the meaning of life. And now that she's gone, it's like an empty void. They both got other stuff that they need to think about. <laughs> well, they have they have whole lives. And it's sort of funny because I actually, maybe the real book we want to read is Takumi and Lara's Adventures. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> like, where do they go next? Because they actually have an eye on the prize and they actually have a future to plan for. Yes. And honestly, maybe that's a good place to wrap up, which is to say, I really wish that John Green would try to write, maybe not those stories, because I don't know that he would be adept at handling that kind of nuance. But yeah. I'm not going to lie. I am really tired of John Green. Yeah. It's the same freaking narrative. It's always about these white, heterosexual, erudite teens who just fall in love and then suffer trauma. And I'm bored with it, Brenna. I'm really tired of it. Got some bad news for you about Let It Snow. (laughs) Um, Well, here's the thing. I've got some bad news for you, which is that... You have exercised your veto power, so we are never going to revisit the Maze Runner, and Uh I am exercising my veto that after Let It Snow, we are not doing any more John Green. (sighs) What if they make a movie of Turtles all the way down? I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Life is too short. I need a different kind of story in my life. Uh, Fine. Can I take you to a place of bingo, though? You can. (laughs) Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so I'm going to pick a really obvious one that we have not talked about at all, which is musicality. Yes. Because this is... Egregious. (laughs) Not one, but two versions of Milkshake. If you want to talk about cutting stuff out of this TV show, (sighs) we could do with so much less slow motion acoustic 2005 renditions my wow wow shake brings all the boys to the i'm i read a review that was like when you hear the second version of milkshake you're gonna drop and i was like why are there two versions of milkshake in this eight hour movie yeah 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 yeah. it's uh (sighs) it's a lot it's a lot some of it works and other parts i was just like okay are we making a visual (laughs) mixtape So in addition to that, I'm going to put in some gaslighting Uh in an unconventional sense because I feel like the show and the book both frame Alaska as an object of gaslighting. Yeah. I can't tell you my mystery because the mystery is the text. Yep. Yeah. I'm going to go with mediocre white boys. Shocking. Obviously. I'm going to go with allusions to classic lit. In what sense? Um, everyone's last words ever, and also <clears throat> extensive references to Auden. My crooked heart loves my neighbor's crooked heart. Sorry, I just threw up a little in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and Alaska drops literary references all the time. Yep. And the centerpiece of her entire life is this quote from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, mm-hmm. which is not a real, not actually Simone Bolivar's last words, if you read the afterward. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um... I'm also going to include absentee adults. Of course. Yeah, primarily Alaska's father, but mm-hmm. also, I suppose, we could we should put dead mom on this board. There's a lot of dead moms. 
<laughs> so Moms true, don't actually. do well in YA, man. No. I like do bad for the greater good. I think so as well. Yeah, I'm thinking about it in, in terms of like the pranking, right? Yeah. That's how they perceive their pranking to be anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it. No, we've got what? acerbic wit. See, I was going to say acerbic wit, but I think that John Green thinks the wit is more acerbic than it is. <laughs> yeah, but I'm maybe this is me conflating teens who speak like adults or <laughs> wit, but I think it definitely still applies. We've got sexual awakening for sure. Oh, yeah, of course. This I is all about, about Miles. Like, uh, That's one of the more uncomfortable scenes in both book and movie, I think. Ew, ew, ew. Okay, the blowjob? No. No yeah. to that. It's completely unnecessary and absolutely should have been cut out of the TV version. Yeah, instead they made it longer in the TV version. <laughs> and then his ghost vision of Alaska with her boobs pressing against him <laughs> in the aftermath of her death in the book. Oh, just gross. It's super gross. Although, did you know that this is one of the most banned books in America? Because of that reason, you think? It was literally banned, at least in Alabama, for quote-unquote pornography. Right, of course. Yep. Oh, these adults. Which John Green has actually written a very thoughtful response to as part of a banned books week Good. thing, where he talks about the need to depict teen lives as they are, even when they are reckless. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go also with abuse because we have a lot of alcohol abuse. Oh, alcohol abuse. I wasn't even thinking of alcohol abuse. We also have emotional abuse from some of these parents. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then it's a question of whether or not we want to say perfect date. I was actually thinking about perfect date, at least from Miles' perspective. Well, either the Thanksgiving or the mm-hmm. last night they spent together. Yeah. And then I think the only other one that I had was maybe unlikely friendships. They're, they're a bit of an odd duck kind of pair. It sometimes feels like the minute that they leave Culver Creek, they will no longer be friends. because Oh, that's absolutely true. <laughs> they're together by circumstance. friends because they are, yeah, because they are the weirdos. So yeah, okay, I'll buy it. All right. So strangely enough, despite all of that, this is one of our fullest bingo cards. Just the way that the board is structured, we did not get a bingo. Have we ever gotten a bingo? No. So annoying. (laughs) We did really well, but basically the O messed us up. We didn't get any of the O blocks. And as a result, we didn't make it. We either needed awkward profanity or stunt casting. You'd think some of those adults, but no, no stunt casting here. No. I love what's his name from Veep, but... Yeah, no. Okay. All right, so next week we are switching gears. We're going to look at Diana Wynne Jones's beloved novel and Zaki's beloved film, Howl's Moving Castle, next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to start a couple of weeks of alternating really heavy realist YA with some fantasy YA. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tell us your thoughts about Manic Pixie Dream Girls at hashtag HKHSPod. If you want to find just me on the Twitters to laud me with praise, uh, it's at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And Joe, where can they find you? Yes. Uh, if you want to tell me that you also enjoy me on the podcast, you can get a hold of me at B still my remote. And that's the letter B. And if you want to send us something longer, as we said off the top, it's hkhspod at gmail.com. If you send us John Green fan fiction, Joe will literally explode. So feel free. Uh-huh. Um, and I teased before I did this part, which is not what I'm supposed to do, is it? It's fine. 
Okay. Uh, well, in that case, uh, so Howl's Moving Castle next week. Check out the novel. It's longer than you think, but really good. And uh, I'll see you on the page. Yes, and I will see you on the screen. We're off to meet our great perhaps.